Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Okay, verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is, this, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and, in, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears... Will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's pray here, and then we'll get started. Um, my name is Eric Cobb, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you have any questions about the church or want prayer or whatever, we'll be, I'll be in the back, back there afterwards. But let's pray. Father, we, um, we come before you as a people in need. Um, when your people Israel were wandering in the wilderness, tired and thirsty and without hope, Lord, you told your servant Moses to to strike a rock with a staff and outflowed water to refresh the people. And Lord, as we're here today, standing before your word, and as it's open, Lord, we pray that you would do something like that, that you would refresh your people from your word, that, that your spirit would move in the hearts of all of us, including myself, to, to give fresh hope for the journey, Lord, to give uh, refreshment, to give truth, to give conviction where needed, to give comfort where needed. Lord, only you know how to bless your people, and we pray that you do it through your word today. We believe in you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, this is a, a neat scene, and one of the reasons why we read this extended piece of scripture is because it all happened at the same place. And where it happened was, it happened in 32 AD at the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, just to give you a position of where that's at in Jesus' life, if this Feast of Tabernacles in 32 AD would be six months before the Passover where he's crucified. And so we're in the last six months of his life. And this Feast of Tabernacles was to commemorate the time they were in the wilderness. Um, when, when Right after they were freed from Egypt, this was a couple thousand years before Jesus, they um, spent 40 years, as you guys know, wandering around in the wilderness. It was a time to remember how God took care of them. How God took care of them in a time when they had no real homes. You think of how vulnerable all these people were as they're wandering around the wilderness. And, and they would remember how God directed them. Remember God directed them by, during the day, there was a pillar of smoke that they could follow around and they knew where to go just following that. And then at night, there was a pillar of fire to direct them where they should go. Um, and then how God also provided for them. Remember, he provided manna for them in the wilderness when they had no food, gave them bread magically, you know, supernaturally. Um, and also gave them water, gave them water um, out of a rock. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But this was seven days to remember how God took care of them in the past to remind them that God will take care of them in the future. And I was thinking, how many of us could really benefit from something similar? How many of us could benefit from, from seven-day uh, feasts, you know? Just to remember how God's provided for us. How in the times of wilderness in our lives in the past, he's provided for us um, direction when we needed it. He's provided for us um, in all the ways that we need it, and that he'll provide for us in the future. There's a real benefit to the people. You can see how that would be a benefit. 
Um, but they did it in a really interesting way. So remember, this is a time when their ancestors were in the wilderness for 40, 40 years, and they had no permanent dwelling. So this is what they do. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths um, because they would live in little shelters they made, okay? So that's why we brought up the camping thing, okay? So if you lived in a rural area, you would take some branches and you'd make like yourself a little hut, put some leaves on it stuff. This was camping. This was not glamping. This was not, who has the motorhome? It's Eric, AC went bad. That's not this kind of thing. And it was to remind them that they lived like that. You know, they lived um, camping for 40 years and that they, God could be trusted. And in the more city areas, they would camp out on their rooftops. You know, a little safer, you could camp out on your rooftop. And, um, and they did this to remember where they came from. You know, here they are, they're established, and they have businesses, and they have homes, and they have all these things. They have real walls. It was to remind them, this is where you're from. God provides, he takes care of you, and he'll take care of you in the future. But guys, at this particular Feast of Tabernacles, the one in 32 AD, there was a special buzz, right? There's a special buzz about Jesus. There's a lot of drama about Jesus, um, and as we read in, in Luke 7, we, or sorry, in John 7, we see the conversations they had. All kinds of questions, tons of questions in here, tons of debate, tons of division. The key verse really in, is verse 43 where it says, so there was a division among the people over him. You see that throughout the whole text. You see the people curious, you know, they're asking questions. Like in verse 11, they say, you know, where is he? They can't find him at first. In verse 15, they go, how does he have learning when he's never studied officially in a, in a real school? Um, in verse 25, they're, they're like, isn't this the one that the leaders are seeking to kill? And yet he's teaching openly. Have they changed their minds about him? You know, so there's all these questions. There's also debate. You know, we see in division. We see them saying in verse 12, one person says, He's a good man. And other people are like, no, he can't be a good man. He leads the people astray. Or in verse 40, some people say, he's really the prophet, the one we've been looking for. And others say, no, no, he's the Christ. And then somebody says, he can't be the Christ. He's from Galilee. He has to come from Bethlehem, right? So you see all of this division and debate and controversy and questions. But you know what, guys? They were doing it quietly. Because on top of it, the people were intimidated. If you look at verse 13, it says, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. They're whispering this. They're murmuring this. They're, they're saying this indoors in places where they're not going to be heard by the religious leadership. And even the religious leaders, you know, intimidated one another. You can see that with Nicodemus, right? He shows some interest and they kind of shut him down, right? These, these religious leaders, these cultural elites were, were really basically saying, you know, nobody of any real standing, nobody of any real education would bother with Jesus, you know, we all know better than that, you know. We see when the uh, temple guards, they send them out to go capture Jesus. They say, go get him, and you go get him. These temple guards would have been Levites. They would have been theologically trained too. So they're kind of like pastor cop, you know, like it's a dual thing. It's pretty cool. And when they come back, they don't have him. They go, what happened? What did you do? And you see what they, they say? They're like, no one ever taught like him. You know, they're just blown away. And, and, the, and the Pharisees answer, have you been deceived too? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, who doesn't know the law, they're accursed. They're basically saying, like, it would only be these, these people in the crowd that don't know the Bible that would bother with Jesus. You know, no educated person would bother with Jesus. No educated person would waste their time, right? But then we have Nicodemus, and he's like, uh, hey, guys, um, you know, because he has interest. We saw back in chapter 3 that he had gone to Jesus privately. But Nicodemus is intimidated too, isn't he? He's being shut down with intimidation. And guys, that's like today. You know, you think about our cultural elites, whether they're in education or the arts or science or whatever, all very open-minded, 
You know, all ideas are worth a hearing, right? Every subject's worth investigating until you mention Jesus. And then it's like, well, no educated person would mess with that, right? He's the only historical person that, you know, we just can't know that much about him. I know there was some literature, some people, eyewitnesses and everything, but there's not much we can know about him. And we've already kind of looked into that and there's nothing to see here, right? That's the attitude with Jesus. Surprising that he's the only one in history that gets that kind of treatment. But um, guys, I'm super excited this morning to look into this chapter in John 7 here and look into this debate and division over Jesus for two reasons. The big one is the debate still goes on in our culture. In fact, as you look at all the options they bring up, they're the same options people bring up today. But the other reason, I think the more personal reason for me, is that this debate about Jesus erupts in my own heart regularly. Okay, this, you know, is he really the one and and those doubts? And I don't know why, but I am, I think, particularly prone to doubting, particularly prone to like going back and going, you know, is this, you know, am I really believing this right? Um, Especially in times when life is hard, you start to question and wonder. You look at John the Baptist, he was like that. I'm not comparing myself to him. But uh, when he was in prison and stuff like that, he started going like, is Jesus really the Messiah? You know, you start, when you have hard times, you start to doubt. Or, conveniently, I start to doubt when I see that Christ is asking something of me that my heart is not quite ready to give to him yet, right? Then it's like, well, you know, maybe Jesus isn't who he said he was. Maybe I got all obsessed with him and, you know, into him and all this stuff and didn't really look at the the evidence against him, you know? Maybe these are all just religious tales. And then, so what I'm forced to do in those times is I, you know, like a kid doing their math homework, I got to go back and check my work. You know, I got to go back and go, why exactly did I believe in Jesus in the first place? You know, and I want to encourage you guys, those of you who are in the midst of, you know, difficult times right now, and you're prone to doubt Jesus like John the Baptist was. Maybe you're in the midst of some work disappointment, or, you know, you have a relationship that's unraveling, or you got a hard diagnosis, something like that, and you start to doubt if Jesus really is who he said he was. I want to encourage you guys this morning that there are very good reasons to believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. There are very good reasons to believe that he is the unique son of God and the Messiah. And we're going to look at some of the different theories they had in this conversation because it's when you doubt that Jesus is who he said he was, you have to come up with an alternate explanation. You guys get that? You have to explain the data. You can't just go, oh, I don't believe in Jesus. You have to tell me, well, who do you say that he is then? And what we're going to see as we look through all these theories in the crowd is we're going to see that there are different theories on Jesus. And the one that he is the Son of God and the Messiah actually fits the data best. It really does. So let's take a look at the theories. Look at verse 12, first one. The he's just a good man theory, right? Verse 12 says, um, people say, he's a good man. Um, This is what I call the patting Jesus on the head response, okay? And this is common in our culture right now where people say, oh, Jesus was just a good moral teacher. You know, Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. Yeah, yeah, right? (laughs) That Jesus is a good moral teacher. He is, he's somebody that, you know, we should listen to. We should kind of add him to the other mine of quotes that we have from Mark Twain and other people. And Jesus is just another voice. He's a good teacher, you know? It's an attempt to kind of pat Jesus on the head, telling him he's a good boy while ignoring is claims for authority. He doesn't claim just to be a good boy. He claims to be God in the flesh. And so we can't just pat him on the head. And as you look at verse 12, some of the people in the crowd know that. So they say, no, 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 no. He leads the people astray. 
A person like Jesus can't just be a good man and a good teacher because of the things he said about himself. Okay? If he's just a regular man, just a regular teacher, and he's not God, he can't say the things he said about himself and still be good. I want to remind you guys, he said, where he says, Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which was an instrument of death, daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. He means eternally. But whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. Not for God's sake, for my sake. Jesus is saying, basically, that you need to make me more important than your family, than your livelihood, even than your safety. You need to choose me over every other important thing in your life. And Jesus demands that kind of allegiance because Jesus claims to be God. And that's why, like in chapter 5, we see he's uh, making himself equal with God, and the religious authorities are trying to kill him. Let me put it this way. Let's say you decided to take a class at MSJC. You decide you're going to take, you know, art history. And the first day that you're doing it, the professor's going over the syllabus and stuff like that. But then he starts saying things like this. You need to make me more important to you than your family, your livelihood, and even your own safety. You need to be willing to die to follow me if you want to be saved. You need to choose me over every other important thing in your life. What's your response as you leave that classroom? He's a great teacher. <laughs> no, you don't say he's a great teacher. You don't go on rate my professor and say, oh, this is the best professor I ever had. What do you say? You say like these people said, he deceives the people. He leads the people astray. Uh, C.S. Lewis had this famous trilemma where he said this about Jesus and us trying to kind of pass him off as just a good moral teacher. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing people often say about Jesus, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. C.S. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and says the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or else something worse. C.S. Lewis says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. And then he says at the end of this whole thing, he says, and now it seems to me obvious that Jesus was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, I love this part, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it might seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. <laughs> you know, Jesus puts us in this bind. And so C.S. Lewis says he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord. Like, those are the options. And guys, you know that the Babylonian Talmud, which was written shortly after this, um, said that Jesus was a liar. Okay? That was the, the tack that it takes. It says that Jesus was a sorcerer and deceiver. So they don't discount the fact that he did actual miracles. What's interesting when you read the accounts of Jesus' life, no one does. No one says that they're fake. Isn't that interesting? The opposition will say all kinds of things about Jesus, but never say that his miracles are fake. And that's the, that's the tack that the Talmud takes, the Babylonian Talmud, is to say that, you know, he did real miracles, but they were to validate his deceptive teachings. And so that's one of the options, that Jesus is somehow a liar or a con religious con man. But guys, Jesus doesn't seem like a religious con man. What did he have to gain exactly? 
I mean, you know, religious conmen, they have things to gain. They get mansions, they get jets, they get things like that. What does Jesus get? Jesus lives his whole life humbly in loving service to others and then ultimately dies on a cross loving people that didn't love him back. Okay? What's his angle? You know? There's no angle here. So if Jesus isn't a good moral teacher and he isn't a liar, who is he? Well, some in the crowd took the other options here, so let's mention. Lunatic. You can see that in verse 20. Some of the people say, you have a demon. You know, okay, well, what's the background of that? Well, he had just said, you, you know, why are you trying to kill me? And they respond to him. The crowd says, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? They're basically saying, you're paranoid. You're crazy. You know, what are you thinking? And guys, let's be honest. There are a huge list of people that were crazy and thought they were God, right? You can go on Wikipedia. People that claim to be God. You can look at a nice long list, very orderly. Um, but there's some interesting things about this list. One is, is that they're pretty all obviously crazy, okay? When you look at the list, you're like, really? Like, people follow this person? And you can tell by their teaching. You can tell by the things that they say. You go, this person's off balance. This person's nuts, right? It's amazing anybody to follow them. That's the first thing. The second thing you notice about the list is that no one on that list has contributed to culture the way Jesus has. You guys realize, if you take a list of the top 10 people that have influenced culture, the top 10 greatest men who have ever lived, okay, and then you put the list of men who have claimed to be God, there's no overlap <laughs> except one name, Jesus Christ. Why? He's not crazy. In fact, his teachings um, showed such wisdom that people were blown away. Look at verse 15. The Jews marveled, saying, how does this man have this learning when he's never studied? Have you guys had an encounter with Jesus' teaching? As you read the things that he said, you don't get the impression this person's crazy. You know what you get the impression is? You're crazy. I find that often, time and time again, this man has way tighter grasp on reality than I do. This man consistently sets me straight. And so they said, you know, how does he have this teaching? He said, well, my teaching's from heaven. Sounds like it is. Verse 46 is great, you know, when the temple guards are sent out to get Jesus and, 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 they, and they don't, and they come back, why didn't you get him? And they say, no man ever spoke like this. Isn't that true? You know, and I would challenge you guys, read other religious texts. No man ever spoke like this man. Seriously. I'm not afraid for you to read the others and compare them. No man ever spoke like him. So we can't write Jesus off as, a, as just a good teacher. He's clearly not a liar. He's not a lunatic. But could he be the Lord? Could he be God come in the flesh to save his people as their Messiah? And, and that's where I'd look at the later part of this text. He fits the Old Testament prophecies of a Messiah perfectly. That's why John includes uh, verse 40. Take a look at it. It says, some of the people were saying, this really is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. And some said, is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ is the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? And the village, uh, the village where David was? Um, what are they talking about here? There's two persons that they were waiting for to come. One's the prophet. He's mentioned in Deuteronomy 18. God promises there that there would be a prophet greater than Moses. So he'd be like Moses in some ways, but he'd have far greater authority and be somebody way more significant than Moses. And Jesus fits this description, right? I mean, a few weeks ago, we saw him feed 5,000 people miraculously with bread. Just like God fed the people in the wilderness with manna through Moses. Jesus fits this description, but he's more, right? Um, they also mention the Christ here. 
Um, God promised this Messiah to come, right? Messiah. That's what Christ means. Christ, Messiah, they mean the same thing. Christ is not Jesus' last name, by the way. I think sometimes we get confused. Um, that was not his last name. It's a title. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, you had prophets and priests and kings that were all anointed, that God's special empowering was on them to do things. And there was a promise that there would be an ultimate anointed one that would come in the last days to save God's people. And Jesus fits the description of that perfectly. You know, the people are like, well, I thought he came from Bethlehem. Well, we all know from reading the other Gospels that he was born in Bethlehem. He fits all those. And guys, he fits dozens and dozens, some say hundreds, of other prophecies about the Messiah. Down to very minute details about things like his life, his death, and his resurrection, which would be the biggest one, right? He fits the description perfectly. So we have to conclude. What do we have here? What's the data say? Data says that we have this historic man who claimed to be the unique son of God, who no one at the time disputed did miraculous signs. He was the most loving and sacrificial person the world's ever seen. He taught the most profound things we've ever heard. He fits the Old Testament prophecy like a glove, including he was raised from the dead on the third day after his death. Who is he? I think we have to agree with C.S. Lewis that However strange or terrifying or unlikely it might seem, we have to accept that he was who he said he is. He is the Messiah. He is the true Son of God. That's where the data leads. And guys, when I go through times of doubt and stuff, I retrace my steps and I look at these. Because guys, I am not interested in believing this if it's not true. Okay? Not interested in it. Um, Malcolm X said, I am for the truth no matter who tells it or who it's for or against. And I feel that way about this. Because if this isn't true, like, I can get encouragement other places. I could do yoga for relaxation. Like, there's other things I could do. But if this is true, then this historic man, Jesus Christ, owns my life and I would have it no other way. Are you there too? But it checks out, guys. Okay, now, now that we know who he is, What did he come to do? Look at verse 37. Okay, now I have to set this up because this is like one of the coolest lines ever, but you have to know what's going on, okay? So here's here's what's going on. Remember, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. They're all living in their little huts and stuff like that for a week, camping, and remembering that God took care of them when they are in the wilderness for 40 years, and if he can do that, he's going to take care of you in the future, and they're remembering all these things, right? Well, one of the things they did on the last day of the feast was something called a water-pouring rite, a water-pouring ceremony, okay? And this is something the Old Testament didn't tell them to do, but they've been doing it for a couple hundred years before Jesus. And, and, this, and what it was for is to remind them that God provided water in the wilderness. And you guys remember how he did that, right? Exodus 17, the people are thirsty, they're doubting, they're, they're disobedient, they're complaining. You know, we asked about your worst camping experience ever. Taking small children camping is always your worst experience ever. I mean, they don't sleep. It's horrible. They don't know not to touch cactus. We like to camp in the desert. Um, it's horrible. It's like, it's like Exodus 17, you know, like, why did you give me these people? You know, God, you know, that kind of thing. So, but what happens here is that, you know, they're complaining and they're saying, why did you bring us out here to die? I mean, you know, you've heard this, right? Why did you bring us out here to die? And uh, God tells Moses to strike the rock, and water comes out. Enough for all the people. And whether there's hundreds of thousands of them at this point, or a million, I don't know. 
But enough water comes out of this rock that everybody gets as much water as they want. It's crazy. It's amazing. And so what they were doing with this water pouring ritual is they were reminding themselves that only God provides water for his people. And so here's how it went. So it wasn't prescribed in the Old Testament, something they've been doing for 200 years. But on the seventh day of the feast, the high priest would take this um, golden pitcher and fill it with water in the pool of Siloam, and he would carry it in a little procession. So they have like this uh, parade. Okay, and so he's carrying this glass, uh, this uh, sorry, this gold container with the water from the pool, and the priests are falling behind him. And when they got to the, where the temple was, um, the on the south side of the inner court, they would blow the so far, you know, those you know those horns, you know, those ram's horns, you know, they blow that three times, and um, and and they kind of march around the altar, and the people were watching this whole thing, right? The priest would march around the altar, and then the temple choir would start singing. They would sing the halal, which is um, Psalm 113 through 118. You could read that. They were singing that, you know, as they're marching this water around. And they're remembering God brought the water and all this stuff, right? And when they get to Psalm 118, all the people would join in, and they would say, Give thanks to the Lord, three times. Give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And then they would take the water with the morning's wine offering and pour it out over the altar, and they would remember that God alone gives refreshment. God alone gives water. It was their way of saying to God, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're the one. Okay, on that day, in that context, verse 37, Jesus, on the last day of the feast, the great day, stood up and cried out, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Can you imagine? I wish I was there. That's shocking. Okay, they had just celebrated the fact that God alone gives water and refreshment to his people. And Jesus stands up and goes, you guys thirsty? I'm the one with the water. What's he doing? Imagine their faces. Jesus is claiming to be God himself. Jesus is saying loud and clear that he is the true Lord of the Exodus. He is the one that will get his people through. Jesus is also, guys, though, the true rock that was struck in the wilderness to give his people life-giving water. Paul makes this connection in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that Jesus is the true rock that was struck in the wilderness to give his people water. Six months later, at the Feast of uh, Passover in 33 AD, Jesus will be taken outside the city of Jerusalem and crucified. He'll die there. And do you remember what they did after he died? To make sure that he was dead, one of the soldiers took a spear, shoved it up under his rib cage, and uh, to puncture his heart, And John reports, in the same John, reports that both blood and water poured forth. Most likely this was because the spear went through his pericardium as they were piercing his heart, and that fluid is pericardial fluid. But I don't think that John is wanting to make a medical observation here. For John, that water has symbolic significance. Like Moses struck the rock in the wilderness to give God's disobedient people life-giving water, Jesus Christ is the true rock. The one who was struck in our place, us, our disobedient selves, so that we could receive the water of life. And what's the water? It's not physical water. Look at verse 37. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, who those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This this water that Jesus gets by being struck on the cross is the Holy Spirit living within us. 
Jesus has come, died and been raised, not to just give us this rational belief that, yeah, he's the Messiah and, you know, my problems are solved. He's come also to give us a living relationship with him, to have God the Spirit living in the center of your body, living in the center of your very being, to refresh you with the presence of God, to cause the very life of Jesus to flow out of your life. So the life you live isn't your own, but Jesus living through you. So that no matter what wilderness God has you in, wandering right now, you can be confident that he will refresh you with the water of the Spirit. Because guys, if Jesus was struck in the wilderness for us, let's not doubt that when we're in our wilderness, he will meet us there. He loves you. He's made that clear. He is going to be there for you. He will be there like the Israelites. He will be there to direct you. He will be there to provide for you. And most importantly, he will be there to refresh you with his life-giving presence. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we're so thankful for what we see in your word. When we get a fresh view of your son and what you've done through him for us, it, it warms our hearts, it makes us renewed, it gives us joy, it gives us peace, it gives us meaning to our struggles. Father, you are near to the brokenhearted, and save the crushing spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but you deliver us out of them all. Father, we just pray for those who are here, who are facing their own time in the wilderness, Lord. We pray that you would refresh them. That though their life might be like a desert and, and there's just sand and dirt everywhere, Lord, that you would open up for them in your word, through your spirit, a, a, a gushing forth of your presence. That they would feel the refreshment that comes from knowing you, the true and loving God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you that, that God himself has come to live within us. Father, we ask that no one would leave here without fresh joy that comes from your presence. Lord, we pray too for those who, who don't yet know you here, Lord. We pray that they would not leave here without uh, drawing near to your son and experiencing a whole new kind of life, Lord that they would be certain that, that your son is the Messiah, is the Christ, and is the one they were made to know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash Menifee.